And so I read this and I think, this is so good that Abraham, as a person of faith, lived a life that stands out as, yes, distinct from this world, and yet he lived a life that beckoned people to give glory to God. That's how we're to live. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 23. We're going to be uh, reading all of the chapter. And this is our final sermon this year in Genesis. Next week, we're going to be doing a standalone sermon in the New Testament on the church. Uh, And uh, the topic is on the unity of the church. And then we'll be the following week, uh, beginning in December, doing an Advent series on the incarnation of the coming King, Jesus. So uh, this is our last study in Genesis 23. If you're new with us, we study the scriptures verse by verse, and we uh, are in Genesis chapter 23 providentially today. Look with me at the text, reading from the ESV. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing, of the people of the land. But if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave 
of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we approach your word this day, we acknowledge that you are the king of creation. You are the giver of life and death is that great enemy. But because of Christ's resurrection victory, death is now a conquered, defeated foe. And so, Lord, as we open up this text and consider matters of life and of death, there are many of us this morning who still bear the scars and the wounds of grief and loss. And so our prayer, dear God, is that you would come to our side and that you would help us. We ask that you would not waste our greatest sorrows, God, but use them to teach us to live in your presence, being both fully alive to pain and joy, as well as to sorrow and hope. In those places where our shattering and your shaping meet, And so teach us now from your eternal word that we may be blessed as well as a blessing to others. And we pray this in the mighty and matchless name of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. What is your perspective on death? If we were to ask an unbeliever, they would probably say, let's change the subject. Death is not something that our Western culture wants to think about or embrace or even give any nod to. In fact, we do our best to avoid the topic of death. We, many people, will, don't raise your hands, but they'll avoid or put off writing their will, or they will not organize their estate. We're all of us probably skeptical about buying life insurance which as a phrase is a bit of an oxymoron, life insurance. We don't use the word die. We don't use the word perish. That sounds too stark, too final. Instead, we use phrases like passed on or pass away to soften the blow. When we go to a funeral, the deceased is not buried. No, they're laid to rest. In fact, the entire ceremony doesn't take place in a graveyard. We call it a memorial park or a funeral home. So on one side, we have this extreme of avoiding death. And then to the other extreme in our culture today, we have an obsession with death, a preoccupation with, an, with the afterlife that didn't end with the Egyptian dynasties. I'm sure I'm not the only one who noticed that this last year, there were a lot more Halloween decorations up in people's yards. You're not the only one to notice that. That's an actual thing because... It's estimated this year Americans spent $10.6 billion, with a B, on Halloween. And that's significantly up since 2020, where it was around $8 billion. And that's frightening for multiple reasons. If you turn on the television, you will see there's a fascination with ghosts, with zombies, and with murder mysteries. And so on one side, you have, you have this absolute avoidance of death. death. Death isn't a reality. And then over here, we have such a preoccupation and fascination with death that it becomes something we worship. But what about, as Christians, what about the death of one of God's people? What is our response? Death reminds each of us, whether you're a Christian or not, that the end or that the afterlife is a reality. And death for the Christian reminds us that our hope or our sure footing is not in this life, but it's in the one to come. 
We as Christians believe that death is not the end, that, that there is a resurrection hope. And that means for us, death is actually a graduation. I like what Spurgeon said, quote, death comes to the ungodly man as a penal infliction, but to the righteous as a summons to his father's palace. He says, to the sinner, it is an execution, and to the saint, it is an undressing. Death to the wicked is the king of terrors, but death to the saint is the end of terrors and the commencement of glory. As Christians, we're not to be obsessed with death over here because Jesus has conquered it. He's rendered death powerless. He's removed the sting of death and therefore the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 says we now no longer have to fear because Christ has conquered death. So we are not obsessed with death, but that doesn't mean that we avoid it. It doesn't mean that we don't still suffer grief, sorrow, loss, or sadness when someone we do love passes from life into eternity. And as we'll see in our text this morning, Abraham is going to mourn the death of his beloved wife, Sarah, his princess. And he's going to weep for her in verses 1 and 2. But as we're going to see, we're going to see three sections here. As we're going to see, Abraham as an example for us, doesn't just stay in that place of mourning, but he faces the future with confidence. We'll see that in verses 3 through 9. And then we'll see in verses 10 through 20 that Abraham sets a good example for us by securing his family's future stability. He doesn't stay in that place of mourning and brokenness, but he focuses on the future and stability. And as we study this, I was struck in my preparation this week when I looked over the text originally and I, I said, uh-oh, there's not a lot here to do a whole sermon on. How are we going to do this? This is going to be a very short sermon. And then as the case always goes, by the end of the study, I said, there's not enough time to do a sermon. We actually have to trim a bunch of stuff out. And so my prayer is that God's word will be a timely ballast for the grieving Christian and it will give us a proper perspective so that we don't mourn like the world who grieves without hope, but we can be godly in our grief. Someone came up to me after first service and they said, this is a timely word for us. We're uh, gonna be burying some family very soon. And so some of us in this room or listening to this later can recount the death of someone who is very dear to us. And the sting of their loss may be removed but the approaching holidays bring painful reminders and they bring those, those, those grieving moments back to our doorsteps. And so for those of you who have suffered loss, suffered grief, who have mourned, my prayers that the scripture be an encouragement to you. For those of you who have not suffered loss, the sobering stats are in. One out of every one human will die. And so this sermon may not be as relevant to you today, but it will be one day. And so my prayer is that this text and the verses we'll look at will encourage and strengthen us to, as believers, to mourn well, to live well, and yes, even to die well. So let's begin with verse 1 and see how Abraham mourns the loss of his loved one, Sarah. Verse 1 says, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, incidentally, Sarah is the only woman in scripture whose age, whose death, and whose burial are together mentioned. Moses, the writer, should know you never mention a woman's age. But see, this is important because Sarah stands out apart from other women 
in the Bible. Not only is she the mother of the Hebrew people, but the Apostle Peter says, if you're a wife who has adorned yourself with submission to your husband, and you do what is right, and you don't give way to fear, Peter says, you are called Sarah's daughter. So Sarah stands out in Scripture as, yes, one with great outward beauty. That kept getting Abraham tempted into trouble. He was being foolish with fearing how beautiful she was that wherever he went, he'd be killed. So she was one with outward beauty, but Peter says she also had the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. The text tells us here that she died at 127 years old. And if you remember our study previously, we talked about how this was close proximity to uh, the fall of man. And so this was probably equivalent to late 60s today. Uh, Now, from other verses, we can determine that their son Isaac was 37 years old or about that age when his mother Sarah dies. If you want to jot this verse down, Genesis 17, 17 explains that Sarah was around 90 years old when her son was born. Here she dies at 127. So we can make the case that Isaac was around 37 years old. We also learn in verse 2, it says, Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Now, if you want to jot this down, Judges 1.10 explains this location was eventually renamed to Hebron. Now, even today, even in modern times in Israel, Hebron is translated as, quote, the sacred place of the friend of God. We know Abraham was, was communicated to or about in Scripture as the friend of God. And so Hebron is the sacred place of the friend of God. Now, when we left off in Genesis 22, around verse 19, Abraham was living south in Beersheba. And so now we see his wife dying in Hebron, in Kiriath Arba. And so the time span in between Genesis 22 and Genesis 23, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and the entire household has gone 26 miles north back to dwell near the Oaks of Mamre, back where Abraham originally lived before his defeat of those kings in Genesis 14. So Hebron, for Abraham, is home. This is where his beloved wife dies, not back in Ur of the Chaldees, 3,000 miles away, where the rest of her family and his extended family lived. This is where she's buried, not in Haran, where they made that pit stop for a time and Abraham's father died. You see, Abraham has settled into a land that did not belong to him, and now he has to bury his wife. Where is he to do that? He doesn't actually own property. And so his wife dies as a sojourner and a pilgrim. But the second half of verse 2 explains that Abraham, it says, he went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So what does this mean? This means he, he actually went into her tent, he sat down, and he began to weep. The Jews would, it doesn't say this here, but later would go on to, uh, would, they would mourn by dressing themselves in sackcloth and in ashes, covering themselves uh, in uncomfortable clothing, so to speak, to draw out the agony and the torment of their suffering and their loss. I like what Matthew Henry says in his commentary. He says, quote, his sorrow was not counterfeit, but real. He came to her tent and sat down by the corpse there to pay the tribute of his tears that his eye might affect his heart, that he might pay the greater respect to the memory of her that was gone. 
He says, tears are a tribute due to our deceased friends. When a body is sown, it is watered. But we must not sorrow as those who have no hope, for we have a good hope through grace, both concerning them and concerning ourselves. I like that. Matthew Henry says that when a body is sown, it must be watered with our tears. And so as we read this text, I want to just provide this opportunity to say when a loved one dies, it is absolutely good and right for you and I to mourn their loss and to celebrate their life. It's not inappropriate to have a celebration of life for someone that we are remembering, to think about the impact that their life had in our world, in our life. But underneath it all, or overgirding all of it, is that our hope is anchored in the resurrection. So that's what happens when someone we love dies, but when a spouse dies, when a spouse perishes, as is the case for Abram, Abraham here with Sarah, this loss is even more incalculable. So you think about the intimacy of private moments. You think about a lifetime of shared experiences. You think about the laughter they shared and the trouble they went through, the proximity and the interest right alongside the person, the Genesis in that great picture of the first wedding, the joining together of Adam and Eve, it says they were naked and they were without shame. In other words, they were completely known, completely vulnerable, joined together that man would not put asunder. All the quirks that only you get to see. Yes, some of the joyful ones and some of the frustrating ones. Waking up by their side every morning and to lose them forever. That loss is unparalleled. The initial numbness that Abraham is certainly experiencing here in his grief will eventually morph into pain and disorientation and then realization, readjustment, and reestablishment of his life. And through all of this, it's weighing him down with a palpable grief and sorrow that other close friends and family get a glimpse of but don't truly experience or share as those who lose a spouse. Some of you in this room can identify with that. That's been your experience. And I find it so comforting in John's gospel how Jesus reacts to his good friend Lazarus's death. The shortest verse in all of scripture, you know this, if you're into Bible trivia, is, what is it? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. What, what verse is it? <laughs> gotcha there. It's John 11.35. And it's one, one uh, noun and one verb, Jesus wept. The onlookers, it says in John, saw the great love that Jesus had for his friend. Jesus wept shows his humanity. He has compassion. He is a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. His weeping dignifies all who have ever wept. So there is a time for mourning. It is appropriate to grieve, even for a Christian. Jesus doesn't show up and shush those who are gathered to weep and say, stop crying. In other words, you're, you're not wrong for missing them, for weeping for them. And it's not helpful to hear platitudes like, hey, I don't know why you're crying. That person was a Christian. You're going to see them again one day. Remember, Jesus knew what was about to happen just moments from then when he would raise him from the dead, and yet Jesus wept. One thing we don't notice in John 11, or at least pay attention to, is that twice in that text, not only did he weep, but it says that he was deeply moved. And in the Greek, the way that's translated, it literally means to snort like a horse, to snort with anger and indignation. 
So yes, Jesus wept out of sorrow, but he also was deeply moved in indignation. He was troubled. He summoned up in himself indignation at the havoc that was wrought by the evil one and the tenderness that he had in his compassion for the mourners. Jesus didn't show up numb to his friend's loss, untouched by emotion robotically, because after all, God doesn't show emotion. No, no, our Lord was angry. He was troubled. And with tears in his eyes and grief in his heart, he snorted at the destruction and the power of that great enemy of humanity, death, that he would soon be breaking the power of forever. John Calvin says, Christ did not come to the sepulcher as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for the contest. And so I'm just encouraged by that when I see Jesus' response to the death of someone dear to him. And here, in the midst of Abraham's loss, many years before this, what do we see him doing? We see him going in and mourning for his wife and weeping for her, grieving. Now, that is true, but he may have also been experiencing some outside pressure. You see, now that Sarah has died, there may have been an influence from family to just come back home. Come back to Ur of the Chaldees. I don't think it's a coincidence that in the preceding verses, right before Genesis 23, which we didn't study last week, verses 20 through 24 in chapter 22, we read about all of the advancement of the family back home. Look with me at verse 20 back in chapter 22. It says, Now after these things it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. And these are some fascinating names. Uz, his firstborn. Buzz, his brother. Kemuel, the father of Aram. Chesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlap, and Bethuel. And then we have very important parentheses. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. That will come into play in chapter 24. That's a very important foreshadowing of who is going to be provided as a wife for Isaac. It says in verse 23, These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother, Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Ruma, bore Teba, Gehem, Tehash, and Makkah. So this was all happening back where Abraham grew up, Ur of the Chaldees. Someone must have sent news from 3,000 plus miles away because it says in verse 20, now after these things, it was told to Abraham. Someone sent word. They didn't have email in those days. They didn't certainly have text messaging. So someone sent word with this list of names. And this may have beckoned Abraham to return. I mean, look at all these children. There's life back home. You're here in a place of death. Why stay in here when there's so many nieces and nephews and grandchildren to be around? Or as many missionaries hear from their well-intentioned family members, oh, you wouldn't do this to your family, would you? Why would God want you to serve him so far away from home? You can do a lot for the Lord right back here with the grandparents. But see, there's another important note in verse 23, and that is that Bethuel fathered Rebekah. And so God is sovereignly at work in the future of Abraham. God's doing a work. And in this foreign land, there may have been a longing to return, but Abraham and Sarah show us an example of those who trust God. They're great examples for us of faith. They didn't make Ur their home, but they also didn't make Canaan their home. You see, the writer of Hebrews declares in Hebrews 11, speaking of these men and women, he said, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them 
and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. It's not a homeland to go back to, it's one to look ahead to. He says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. That's what Abraham and Sarah looked ahead to. And so when we come to verse 3, I believe Abraham is now more than just rising up from sitting, but he's rising up from his grief. We know there's a time to mourn, but there's also a time to move on and rise from our mourning. So in the second section, we're going to see how Abraham faces the future now with confidence. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 says, And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. Now, just for a moment, circle that uh, word Hittites. We're going to see it repeated often in this chapter. And some commentators are confused by this because the Hittite empire never actually extended this far south uh, politically or geopolitically. Never, never had borders this far south. And their laws were dated far after uh, the dates of these events. And so to reconcile that, some commentators say, well, I think that Hittites is just another, uh, it's just another word. It's a synonym for Canaanite. And that's possible. We see the Canaanites dwell in the land. But there are a lot of Hittite elements to this story. And so it's very possible that there were pockets of Hittite peoples who had settled there and had now taken possession of the land. And that's who uh, he's dealing with. Some of your translations, older translations, say the Heth people. So notice that Abraham identifies himself not as a Heth, not as a Hittite, not as a Canaanite. But notice he says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. He rightly identifies himself as an outsider. That's not just because he was from Ur of the Chaldees. He doesn't say, I'm a, I'm a Chaldean. I'm from, I, I, I journeyed through Haran. No, you see, Abraham and all of his sons and daughters by faith are, according to Leviticus 25, 23, we are all strangers and sojourners with Yahweh. Even King David recognized this in Psalm 39, 12. He said, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Why? He said, for I am a sojourner with you. And then he says, I'm a guest like all my fathers. You and I, as sons and daughters of Abraham by faith, are also resident aliens. You and I are exiles who must never settle in a foreign country like we are today. We can't truly settle here lest we forget where our true home is. Paul told Timothy that you and I are like soldiers on assignment. If you've met any soldier who's been deployed, they are on assignment. And Paul told Timothy, don't get entangled in civilian affairs, pursuits. Why? Because our aim is to please the one who enlisted us. Peter said, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. He said that in 1 Peter 2.11. And so that's what we're doing here in this community. You and I may live in Bradenton. We may have a zip code that 
shows our residence here locally, but you and I, we await a heavenly place, a heavenly home, an eternal city. That's our true home. And so in this act of rising up and communicating to the people who are the Hittites, Abraham was not doubting the promise of God. He was actually leaning into it. He was believing that this land would be his. Now, when he says, note with me in verse four, when he says, give me property among you, this is not a request for free land. He's going to say right after this, I'll pay for it. So this is a real estate transaction request. He has his wife's body. He needs to bury her. Is he going to use a shared tomb? If not, is he going to go all the way home back to Ur of the Chaldees? He's not going to take her remains home to Babylon. This is home. And so he's trusting that God will provide, not for land that he can dwell in, but particularly a tomb that he can bury his wife in. He is not stuck in the past He's not stuck in a place of mourning. He's now making decisions that help carry him into the future. And so he confidently requests this of the people he's sojourning among. Look at verse five. He says this to the Hittites and it says, the Hittites answered Abraham and said this, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince among us. Now, I think this is really important to note here. Note with me the respect that Abraham commands among his neighbors. The inhabitants of the land recognize him as a prince of God among them. Notice they don't say, you're one of us. They recognize he's an outsider, but they give credit and glory to God as, hey, you're a representative of him. You're actually royalty. We've seen this, and you are God's prince. Now, this is a great testimony. Previously, Abimelech has said, God is with you in all that you do. Previously, Melchizedek, the king and priest of Salem, has said, Abraham, you are blessed by God most high. And so I read this and I think, this is so good that Abraham, as a person of faith, lived a life that stands out as, yes, distinct from this world, and yet he lived a life that beckoned people to give glory to God. That's how we're to live. We're to live separate from this world. We're in the world, not of it. And yet we, like Jesus said, a city on a hill, we beckon people to come living lives that exude integrity. We know this. One of the qualifications for an elder that Paul outlined for Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.7 is this. He said, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Why? So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So one of the marks that we're looking for as we consider future elders here at the church is we are looking at what scripture outlines for us. And one of the final things there in 1 Timothy 3 is that he has to have a good reputation with outsiders. So if we had a gentleman and we were reviewing maybe some of the testimony of his coworkers, of his boss, of his employees, and someone were to say, oh, that guy's a total scammer. That guy's not a guy of integrity. He's not a man of his word. I would never make that guy an elder. Obviously, we're not going to say, eh, it doesn't matter what they had to say. They're ungodly. We're going to listen to those, those considerations. And so the world should look at believers, but especially pastors, and have a favorable view of them. Now, no, that doesn't mean we're bending over backwards, just trying to be liked, trying to be accepted by the world, hoping that the world would just please like me. But it does mean that our unbelieving coworkers and neighbors and friends and family and students and teachers and business clients 
should at least recognize, they might use the phrase the culture is using, oh, those are just closed-minded bigots, but they should at least say, yes, those are people of faith. Those are people of righteousness. Those are people of justice, mercy, and sincerity. That's what we're to have. And so I love that they describe him as a prince of God among us. So they invite Abraham to bury his dead in whatever property he chooses. Notice the rest of verse 6. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. In other words, we have lots of shared tombs, Abraham. Take your pick. Bury your wife alongside our dead. And notice, though, he is not yet negotiating directly with a landowner. So it seems that he's communicating with the citizens first broadly, uh, most likely at the city gate or the city council. But Abraham already has in mind a property. Look at verse 8. It says, And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So notice he's asking, give me, I'll, I'll pay fair market value for it. Give me the, the price. The evangelical commentary in the Bible explains this. According to Hittite code, if you bought one field from another, you had to assume all the feudal obligations of the field. And so they, they suggest that by requesting only a part of the field, Abraham is trying to avoid all of the financial obligations. So in, in the same breath, Abraham is wisely thinking ahead and coming out of his grief to take care of securing the future, but in the same hand, he's also being wise. He's facing his future with confidence. He didn't stay stuck in the past, bound by the seduction of nostalgia, just thinking of the good old days, lingering in the tent and just weeping. He didn't let the grief cripple him forever. No, he looked forward to the promises of God. He looked back with gratitude, to be sure, but at the same time, he looked ahead with hope. About 20 years ago, our neighbor had uh, lost her husband, and she was so struck with grief and so wanting to avoid the grief that she had not made any funeral arrangements for, I want to say it was like two months. And so she just not, did not want to deal with the passing of her husband. And so there is a time for grief, but as God's people, we work through our grief and then we align our lives with the truth of Scripture. And we remember, no, this life is not the ultimate. The death is not the end. God is sovereign over all of our days and even over our departure. And so in purchasing this cave and in going into this negotiation, Abram has to be consistently reminded of the loss of his wife, but he's moving through that grief to bring us to our final section, securing his family's future stability. So let's see how this transaction ends up going. Verse 10 says, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites. Remember, he requested Ephron. Ephron was sitting there, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. Now, real quick, time out. This is not coincidental. Remember, the gate of the city, this is where the major business decisions, the major real estate or financial transactions took place in the city by the influential men 
the leaders of the city. So this is a, a city council. This is official. These are men who are, you're going to see Hittites in, in, the, in the side of the Hittites. You're going to see that phrase mentioned over and over. This is a set of witnesses. This is to make this official. There, there's no scam happening here. This is actually an ancient Near East real estate negotiation. So let's see how it plays out. Ephron said, verse 11, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Now, you might be thinking, wow, what a generous guy. He's just given him not only the cave, but the whole field. What a wonderful, friendly Hittite. Well, don't be impressed yet. This is all part of the negotiation. Look at verse 12. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will, hear me. I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Now, if you're keeping count, the offer started with the Hittites saying, you can use any of our current tombs. Abraham's not going to accept that. And so Abraham says, I actually have a particular property in mind, but just the cave in the field of Ephron. Countering that offer, Ephron, Ephron has said, the cave is not for sale by itself. In fact, the whole field is for sale. And so when we read this and we read he offered it to him as a gift, this was a part of the negotiations. And if Abraham were to say, sure, sounds great, thank you for that, that would be incredibly offensive. And so Abraham is wisely, shrewdly understanding how the real estate transactions of the day worked. He's, he's not coming in as an outsider and then trying to take advantage of their culture. He's saying, okay, I'm going to play by the rules that they're asking me to play by. We have all been to a garage sale or to a car lot, and there's a number we have in mind when we make our offer. And, and so he doesn't just come in and say, here's how much I'm going to pay. He's, he's sort of being wise in this. He's going to ask him to set the price. He says, I'll pay the price of the field. What's the price of the field? And so it would be completely inappropriate to say, sure, I'll take it for free. It'd be like if someone took you to dinner and said, hey, uh, let me pay for the bill. Sometimes that happens when we go out to dinner or lunch with Shoreline family. Sometimes we as husbands will argue over, over the, the bill. I'm paying it for it this time. No, you pay for it. And so we, we sort of argue. I make it sometimes a game. It would be really offensive if someone were to say, let me pay for the bill. And I just go, well, actually, since you're paying for it, can I get steak instead? Because I didn't think I was going to get anything but salad. And, and so it's a bit rude. It's even customary in our culture to say, are you sure? I can, I can pay for it. And so notice that Abraham doesn't name his price. He says, I'll pay the fair market asking price. And so now it's back to Ephron, verse 14. Ephron answered Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth... 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So he's clearly telling him, here's how much it is. It's 400 pieces of shekel or 400 shekels of silver. And that sounds like a high price. It's actually, we have three different texts from ancient Syria that give that exact amount as the standard purchase price for a piece of real estate. So this is, this is not price gouging. Uh, this is not them taking advantage of, oh, he's an outsider. He doesn't know uh, this is a very fair price, and they're being, uh, they're being very kind to him and, and fair to him. And so he doesn't 
negotiate any further. It says in verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron. Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver. And then it says, according to the weights current among the merchants, uh, they had to verify the weight was matching. And so this whole conversation, at first glance, is confusing. It's all a transaction. And all of it was done uprightly by Abraham and by the Hittites. And I think that's a great picture for us as followers of God to represent God rightly in our business affairs. It's not as if Abraham was over here separating his mind religiously. I'm going to be a worshiper of God and be upright. But then over here financially, I'm going to be shrewd and I'm going to take advantage of those sinful Hittites. It's not as if he rationalized this and said, you know what, these bunch of sinners, I'm a king's kid and God understands I should get a good deal and so I'm going to make an easy buck off an unbeliever. Some people have that mentality. They think, well, I'm a Christian, I should get a good deal on this. In fact, we even do this to our brothers and sisters. We hire someone to clean our carpets and we say, well, I'm just offended. He didn't give me a good deal. I have a family to feed. It's like, doesn't the carpet cleaning Christian have a family to feed? Proverbs 11.1 says this. It says, dishonest scales are detestable to the Lord, but an accurate weight is his delight. That has nothing to do with getting on the weight scale at the gym. It has everything to do with accuracy and honesty and uprightness and candor in our business practices. So believer, if you're a business person, it's important that we are upfront, that we're honest. If you're lying, you're cheating, you're stealing on the job, you're misrepresenting God and you need to repent and do what is right. And so we see Abraham doing what is right. So verse 17 tells us the field, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave in it, and even all the trees in the field, that's important if you're in the desert, throughout his whole area, was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Now, this was not a place for him to necessarily raise a family. This was simply a burying place. One person pointed out, it's interesting that the first plot of ground Abraham possessed was not a farm nor a field, not a, a city nor a town, but a tomb. You see, the cave of Machpelah will become the burial place, not only for Sarah, but also for Abraham, for all of the patriarchs and their wives. In fact, we read burial instructions from Jacob, Abraham's grandson in Genesis 49. Notice this on the screen. It says, then Jacob commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. Down in verse 31, it says, there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, as we'll see later in our study of Genesis. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Today, we know where this is, politically or geographically. We know where this location is. The cave of Machpelah is inaccessible to us today. But the area above the cave is the site of a large mosque. It's the Ibrahimi Mosque, and most likely before it was a mosque, it was a church. 
And this is a place that is sacred both to Muslims as well as to Jews. And both of them have separate access to the building. But the remains, I think we have a picture of the cave itself. The remains are off limits. Now, I just said it was sacred to Muslims and to Jews. Not as much to Christians. Why? Because we know where Abraham truly resides, don't we? We know he is in the presence of the Lord. So in the New Testament, Stephen the deacon is addressing the crowd that is about to turn on him and stone him. And here's what he explained about Abraham in Acts 7. He said, He went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. You see, this wasn't a land to reside in. This was a land to die in, to bury in. Abraham's inheritance wasn't fully received by himself, but it was secured by him for his family's future stability. And I think that sets another great example for us as people of faith. And I'll put myself in this category. As those who are getting older, it's important that we think ahead to ensure that our families are not left with unnecessary challenges on top of their grief and loss. So things like writing a will, obtaining life insurance, discussing DNR, medical power of attorney, these are not failing to trust in God. No, these are taking an unnecessary burden off of our loved ones so that your eventual passing can be a celebration and not an additional trial. We have to realize death is inevitable for each one of us. As much as we try to push that out, crowd that out with the daily focus, whatever's going to distract us from death, we have to realize death is inevitable, but death is not the end. Death is not the end. You see, church, one day, each and every one of us will breathe our last breath. And I know it's uncomfortable to talk about, and hopefully you're not overly indulging in thinking of that today with anxiety. It may come sooner than you expect. It may come after a long and full life, but it's still coming, should the Lord tarry. But the hope, right, is that something far greater awaits us when we open resurrected eyes. You see, we can breathe our last breath, not anxious, not afraid of what is to come. But as Paul would say, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. Paul told the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, he said, I'm hard-pressed between the two. It's better for you and more needful for you that I remain. There's ministry to do here in Philippi. It's better for you, for your sake, that I stay. He said, but I desire to depart. He said, that is better far. You know, we don't have that mentality. For those that we're leaving behind, there's certainly loss. But Paul says, it's better for us to depart, to be with Christ. And oh, that we as people would desire the paradise that awaits, the glorious Jerusalem from above, the king of creation who's coming more than we enjoy the broken treasures in this fallen place. You and I don't think about our own uh, eternity often enough. And sometimes when there's the death of a loved one or the death of a celebrity, death comes back into focus. And my prayer is that when it does, we'd be reminded 
of the truth of the gospel. You see, because of Adam's fall, the curse of sin in the garden that awoke death as our great enemy has now visited all of mankind. Today, you may be a young person and you think this is gonna happen many, many years from now. I don't have to make that decision. I wanna remind you as Jonathan Edwards, as Charles Spurgeon told their congregations, you today are dangling above eternity and your sin has separated you from a holy God. This morning, if you were to pass from life into death and into eternity, you will stand before your maker, a holy God. And if your plea is not Christ alone, if your plea is my own works, my own righteousness, you stand condemned. You see, because of the chasm we could never cross to keep God's perfect law as much as we tried or to absorb his fearsome wrath, because of that chasm, God provided a way of salvation. Because of his great love for us, God sent his son, our precious Lord Jesus, as we'll cherish in the next few weeks and months. He was born of a virgin. He's God incarnate. He's God in the flesh. And he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for your iniquity. And the scripture says that upon him was the chastisement that you deserved. It was the one that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. In fact, Isaiah 53 goes on to say, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him, on Christ, the iniquity of us all. You see, dear brother or sister, Christ shed his precious blood and he died. He died. And so as our elder brother who goes before us in death he now has removed from us this crippling fear. I know some of you have that crippling fear of dying. But because he's gone before us, he's removed that fear. But see, Christ didn't just die, he also rose. And because he is our Messiah, he also leads us in triumphant procession. And he humiliates our foe and he empties the tyrannical power of death and dying. The scripture says in Ephesians 2, not only will we be risen with Christ, we are risen with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. And so to die is to translate, it's to graduate from one degree of glory or brokenness to another degree of glory. We put off this broken flesh, we put on immortality. William Cooper's hymn, we sing it often. He says it best. There is a fountain filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme, and it shall be till I die. I think those words are on Spurgeon's grave. Redeeming love has been my theme, and it shall be till I die. And then this lyric we don't maybe know as well says this. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave and that, that will happen one day. Then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Amen? That's the Christian's hope. This morning, if you are dead in your trespasses and sins, then death is just already a reality in your life. And yet, because of what Christ has done today, you can be translated from life, from death to life. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And that's all because of the finished work of his dear son. So I implore you on Christ's behalf, if you are here today, you've never received Christ's finished work, repent of your sin, 
Renounce it. Turn from it and turn, would you, this morning to Christ. No matter how old you are, how young you are, make today the day of salvation by receiving his finished work so that one day, it's not death that you'll suffer, it's eternal life you'll experience. Let's bow our heads together. I want to pray a prayer that's been adapted from a book called Every Moment Holy. And it's a prayer for those who have lost a loved one. I'm just adapting the prayer a bit, but I want to pray this for many of us who've experienced loss. Lord, as we reflect on those we love who have passed from this life to the next, we're grateful for the happiness that was, even as we mourn in the sorrow that is. Even as we sit in the sadness of now empty spaces in heart and home, empty spaces that echo our loss, we ask with trembling, humble, and lamenting hearts, O oh Lord, how long? How long, O oh Lord, till all is made right? How long till your grace restores all loss? How long till these hurts are healed and these griefs eternally sealed and set aside? by the finally completed work of your redeeming love. O Lord, be near us. Be near each of us who must reckon with the sorrow of death and the sting of separation. For what we feel in our loss is nothing less than the groan of all creation. Our finite minds cannot trace the deeper mysteries of your eternal work, but this we know with certainty. You are merciful and loving. You are gentle and compassionate, and you care tenderly for all that you have made. We know that the final working of your redemption will be far-reaching, encompassing all things in heaven and on earth, so that no good thing will be lost forever. So even in our sorrow and loss, it will somehow someday be met and filled and in joy made forever complete. But Lord, in the meantime, comfort us for the ache of these days is real. And Lord, to that prayer, I add my own. May we know Jesus more in the power of his resurrection as we share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, we may obtain, attain to the resurrection from the dead. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that Christ, you are our hope in life and in death. And Lord, as we ask that question, what will keep us to the end? We know the answer, the love of Christ in which we stand. And so we stand this morning in the name of our risen Savior, praying these things by faith. We love you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.